Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and your host here on Last Week in the Church, the show where we sort through the flotsam and jetsam of the last week's current on the Vatican beat and try to lift out those few nuggets of gold that you really need to know. Here's what we've got for you this week. We begin with remembrance of things past. So the Pope's ongoing Synod of Bishops on Synodality continues to unfold here in Rome. I'm going to offer you a couple of historical notes to try to explain the significance of what we are witnessing in these days. Then second, we've got threading the needle, the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip continues to dominate global headlines. The Pope and his Vatican team are continuing to try to find a path to play some kind of mediating or conciliatory role in all of this. We will bring you the latest. Then third, we've got a tale of two narratives in the Vatican's trial of the century, that is this trial against 10 defendants, including Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu for various forms of financial crime. What we learned this week as defense attorneys are presenting their closing arguments is that there are basically two competing narratives to explain this spectacularly failed London real estate deal that is at the heart of this case. We'll unpack what both sides are saying. And then finally, the politics of the Pope. The Pope's home country, Argentina, went to the polls on Sunday to try to pick a new president. We're now set for a runoff election on November 19th. And although Pope Francis is not on the ballot, nevertheless, the legacy and the profile of the Pope is very much at the heart of what Argentines are being called to decide. We'll explain what's going on there. All that and more is waiting for you on this week's episode of Last Week in the Church. You're not going to want to miss this stuff, folks. I promise you, this is great stuff. So stay where you are. Don't go anywhere. Do not click away. Do not change that dial. We will be right back. So, notoriously, intelligence and wisdom are not the same thing. It is actually possible to be incredibly smart and also incredibly foolish. Footnote, it is also possible to be a total idiot and a great fool. My life is sort of a laboratory experiment in what happens when both of those things are true. But that's not our point here today. Our point here today is that history is replete with examples of the great mischief that can result when intelligence and wisdom become decoupled. If you want a refresher course in this point, by the way, I recommend you go see the brilliant new movie Oppenheimer, which is basically a three-hour meditation on precisely this point. However, the contrary is also true. That is, if disaster is often the result when intelligence and wisdom separate, triumph and amazement is often what happens when intelligence and wisdom come together. And this is a roundabout setup for a naked commercial plug, because I'm here today to recommend a new piece of technology to you. It's a new app called Magisterium AI. And basically, it is an effort to combine intelligence, in this case, artificial intelligence, with the great spiritual and ethical wisdom of Catholic teaching. It is an app that is by now trained on more than 3,000 official church documents. 
It is available in 10 languages, so pretty much any tongue you would, you know, wish to get an answer in. And what you can do is you can go on to this app and ask it questions, ranging from really high-end egg-headed stuff to, like, explain the doctrine of transubstantiation or what were the issues in the Arian heresy, all the way down to the kinds of banal things that real people would ask, like, what's the deal with the Pope? Or, you know, the Virgin Mary, do you guys worship her? Like, what's the thing? You know, whatever your question is, this tool will give you cogent, insightful, well-written answers. So whether you are a priest who needs talking points for a homily, or you're a CCD teacher who has that one precocious kid in class that won't stop asking you questions, and speaking as the former precocious kid in class, I know how annoying that slice of life can be. I raised it to a fine art. Whatever you know, whatever your needs may be. I mean, if you're just an ordinary person with questions about the Catholic Church, because, I don't know, you read a Dan Brown novel or you watched Godfather 3 or whatever it is, this tool will be extraordinarily useful to you. It is the brainchild of our friends at Longbeard. That's a digital marketing and design company. They are the IT backbone of the Crux site and also of last week in the church. These people are geniuses. And beyond that, they're also salt of the earth, great people. And so whatever they touch basically turns to gold. This is the latest example of it. I highly recommend it to you. Now, I'm not going to promise that if you, you know, use it, and by the way, you should, it's at magisterium.com. That's magisterium.com. I'm not going to promise you a full refund if you're not satisfied because it's free. So you don't actually have to pay anything. What I will promise is that if you don't like it, you are free to send me a note telling me that. I will use another AI app to generate an automated response in which I have no rule whatsoever. I'm actually just kidding. I would pass your response along because I guarantee you the people at Longbeard want to get this right. So again, check it out. That is Magisterium AI online at magisterium.com. By the way, if this didn't convince you, and frankly, it's me, so why should it convince you? But if you want a more intelligent presentation of the argument for this, read my wife Elise's article on the Crux site. It is replete with insight and elan and verve, and it will lay out the case in very compelling fashion. Magisterium.com. Check it out. All right, everybody. Happy Tuesday to you. Happy Tuesday, October 24th in the year of our Lord, 2023. So, you know, the big Vatican story these days is, of course, the Synod that is going on right now, this assembly of bishops and other Catholic leaders for the first time, including a large number of women, including lay women from all around the world that is going on in Rome these days. It is devoted to the theme of synodality, which, to be quite honest with you, is a word more sort of defined by its ubiquity than its clarity. It's, it's hard to say exactly what that means, but in general terms, it means a more listening and consultative church. This synod is continuing to go on, and it is happening under what might be generously described as a sort of cone of silence, because 
the Pope and his allies have imposed upon this synod a kind of media blackout. That is, they have told participants they are not to be discussing not only what other people are saying, but what they themselves are saying in the synod. So we're kind of restricted in terms of knowing what is going on to these briefings the Vatican is doing every day where they handpick a few participants to talk to the media. And generally speaking, in these briefings, they have described the proceedings in highly general terms, but without a great deal of specificity. Now, I'm going to try to deliver to you two historical references, two, if you like, if I can, you know, channel my inner Proust, two remembrances of things past to try to make sense of what is going on. So, let me begin with a reference to the Second Vatican Council in the mid-1960s and Pope Paul VI. So, part of the drama of this synod was that in the run-up to it, and remember, this synod has been underway for basically three years. I mean, Pope Francis called this thing in 2020. He announced his intention to hold this synod. There was this lengthy preparatory process that began with meetings on the diocesan level, then the national level, then the continental level. And so there has been a very long sort of buildup to all of this. And through those three years of preparation, it was widely expected that a couple of issues in particular would be of special significance. One was the issue of, of outreach to the LGBTQ plus community and specifically the question of the blessing of same-sex unions. Another was women clergy and whether women might be ordained, if not to the priesthood, at least to the diaconate. And there was a lot of expectation that those were going to be hot-button issues at the Synod. Yet, right before the Synod began, a group of five conservative cardinals, by the way, their average age is 85.6 years, I think, so they're all mostly you know, retired. None of them are participants in this synod, but nevertheless, they submitted a set of what are known as dubia, that is doubts, to the Pope, which touched upon these issues. Now, that wasn't particularly surprising. All five of these cardinals, a group that includes American Cardinal Raymond Burke, are known as kind of frequent papal critics. The surprise was instead that Pope Francis actually answered and the Vatican published his responses. And in those responses on these two hot-button issues, the Pope delivered a kind of cautious yes to the blessing of same-sex unions and a nuanced no to the issue of women clergy. Now, you know, critics say, well, if you're going to do that, then what's the point of the Synod? Like, you brought this group together to listen to different voices, and yet you spoke before you even listened. On the other hand, we had this past week one of the participants in the Senate, it's Bishop Anthony Randazzo of Broken Bay in Australia, who was a former official of the Vatican's, well, what used to be known as the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, now the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, who made an interesting historical parallel. He said that basically by taking these questions off the table before the Senate even began, what Pope Francis was doing is analogous to what Pope Paul VI did 
1965, as the Second Vatican Council was nearing its conclusion. And it seemed for all the world as if there was going to be a messy, divisive public debate over married priests in the council. And what Pope Paul VI did was send a letter to the council saying, I am reserving this issue to myself. I'm going to decide and I am going to defend celibacy. So forget about it. You don't need to talk about it because I've got it. And what most historians of Vatican II would say is, well, what that accomplished was preventing the end game of Vatican II from becoming bogged down in a very contentious argument over a single issue and instead allowed it to kind of end peacefully. And Randazzo was arguing that the Pope's intervention has had the same effect in this synod. Now, you know, we will see in terms of what this synod produces if that's the case. But it is very interesting to note that Pope Francis, who has always argued that his papacy is an attempt to resurrect and revive the spirit of Vatican II, in some ways was channeling his inner Paul VI by clearing a space for other questions to surface, by taking these very contentious matters basically out of the synod's consideration. Now, a second historical parallel that occurs is to the Synod on the New Evangelization in 2012 that happened under Pope Benedict XVI. Now, that synod, let me remind you, occurred against the backdrop of the outbreak of the Syrian Civil War much as this synod is occurring against the backdrop of the outbreak against war between Israel and Hamas. It also occurred against the backdrop of a high-profile Vatican trial in 2012. It was the trial of Pope Benedict XVI's butler, Paolo Gabriele, for stealing documents off his desk and leaking them to Italian journalists this time. It is the trial of various defendants, including, as I said, a cardinal for various forms of financial crime. But perhaps the most relevant point is that the Synod on the New Evangelization was devoted to the concept or the phrase New Evangelization that was very much the signature phrase of the papacies of John Paul II and Benedict XVI. Much as this Synod is devoted to synodality, the signature phrase and concept of the papacy of Pope Francis. Now, what most people would probably say is that that synod in 2012 was the last hurrah of the new evangelization, at least in terms of official Vatican verbiage, because a few months later, Pope Benedict XVI resigned, Pope Francis was elected, and new evangelization in terms of Vatican sponsorship basically disappeared. Now, the question is, Will the same fate await synodality after Pope Francis is gone, whenever that moment may come? I mean, we don't know, but it certainly is a historical precedent worth pondering. This week, the Synod is nearing its end game. The close of the Synod will be on October 29th. We will see, as ever, what the results of the Synod are. Remember that this Synod is merely, in a sense, prolegomenum. Right? It is setting the table for another synodal assembly next October. We will obviously be tracking what it puts on the table for that next round of synodal debate. All right, second up this week, we've got threading the needle. So 
The bloody war between Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip continues. The latest numbers are, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, about 4,600 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed, about 1,400 Israelis have been killed, mostly in those surprise terrorist attacks that began the war on October 7th. Now, in the early stages of this conflict, there was a kind of war of words, which we've talked about on this show, between Israel and the Vatican over how to characterize what was going on. Israel insisting that what was going on was legitimate self-defense against barbarous terrorist attacks. The Vatican and church leaders in the Holy Land trying to describe this instead as a kind of spiraling conflict on both sides that needed to be sort of de-escalated. Now, in the past week, what we have seen is that the Vatican and church leaders have been trying as best they can to feed this perception, to avoid feeding this perception of tension between Israel and the Catholic community in terms of how to characterize all of this. The Pope, on Sunday, in his traditional noontime Angelus address, came back to the conflict, basically said that he was praying for peace in the Holy Land. He described war as, a, as always a defeat for humanity. He urged everyone to pray for peace. He expressed his sorrow for attacks on a hospital in Gaza during the past week and also on a Greek Orthodox parish, but he did not assign blame for those conflicts, for those attacks, and neither, by the way, did a statement from the patriarchs and heads of churches in the Holy Land. Of course, we all know that that strike on a hospital in Gaza, a hospital which is traditionally known as the Baptist Hospital, even though it's actually run by the Anglican Communion. By the way, if you wonder why that is, let me remind you, this is the Middle East where there is no requirement that things make sense. So, you know, you've got a Baptist Hospital that is run by the Anglicans. Anyway, there is an ongoing debate as to who is actually responsible for that. Israel and its allies claim that it was a, a mistake with a Hamas missile. Hamas and its allies in the Arab world claim it was Israel. Anyway, point is, the Pope and Catholic leaders are trying to avoid getting bogged down in that debate and are simply trying to express broad concern for the humanitarian consequences of what is happening. On Sunday evening, Pope Francis made a phone call to U.S. President Joe Biden. This was confirmed by Vatican News. According to a readout we got from the White House, President Biden used this call to reaffirm his strong condemnation of Hamas terrorist attacks, but also expressed his concern for being able to deliver humanitarian aid to Gaza, also his desire for a de-escalation of the conflict and for a search for a durable peace between Israel and Palestine. The Vatican did not comment on the comment of the, the content of the phone call, which is another way of saying that the Vatican is trying to avoid being sucked into the polarized dynamics of this conflict that is taking sides, either blaming Hamas 
and the Palestinians directly or blaming Israel directly for what's going on, and instead trying to remain super partes, right? Above the parties, theoretically neutral, and therefore in a position to act as a broker or a mediator should opportunities present themselves. You know, we will see how all of this plays out, but it is another indication of how the Pope and his team are trying to thread the needle between, on the one hand, not at all minimizing the drama of what is happening, but on the other hand, not trying to be perceived as partisan, but instead positioning themselves as a player that theoretically could be of help in trying to resolve the conflict. We will see. Third up this week, we've got a tale of two narratives. So the Vatican's trial of the century. And I continue to use that phrase, despite the fact that one of my Italian colleagues recently said that I was an idiot for using this vocabulary. He said, this is not the trial of the century. This is instead a farce from the 19th century. Well, whatever. My point is, what other candidate would you put forward? for the Vatican's trial of the century. I mean, what other trial has come along that involves such a all-star galaxy of defendants that includes, for the very first time in history, a cardinal of the Catholic Church who was being subjected to the judgment of a Vatican tribunal. Anyway, this trial continues to go on. Defense lawyers are giving their closing statements. And this past week, we heard from the lawyer for one of the defendants, a guy by the name of Fabrizio Tirabassi, who was an official within the Vatican Secretariat of State, who was involved in this controversial purchase of a former Herod's warehouse in London that was supposed to be converted into luxury apartments and providing a revenue stream for the Vatican going forward, which fell apart and is now the heart of this prosecution. Turabasi's lawyer, an Italian attorney by the name of Codaldo Intrieri, essentially argued that what we've got here is not a criminal act, that there is no evidence that there was a criminal conspiracy to defraud the Vatican. What he said is, instead what we have is an investment that simply failed due to poor management and skittishness and, frankly, incompetence at senior levels of the Vatican. And while it is unfortunate that this investment didn't pay off, that doesn't make it a crime. The soundbite from his presentation is that a bad investment is not a crime. Basically speaking, ladies and gentlemen, what we have here is a tale of two narratives. So the narrative being told by the Vatican prosecutor in this case, the promoter of justice, an Italian lay attorney by the name of Alessandro Didi, is that there was a cabal that involved shady Italian financiers, Raphael Mincioni and Gianluigi Torzi, and a series of officials inside the Secretariat of State, up to and including the former number two official in the Secretary of State, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, who came together in a criminal conspiracy to defraud the Vatican of tens of millions of dollars. 
And that's the basis for this prosecution. Now, on the other hand, there is the narrative being propounded by defense attorneys, which was, which is that this proposed investment in London began as a basically good business idea. Then, through a series of mistakes and, and misimpressions and boneheaded judgments on the part of various people who were involved, including, by the way, the most senior officials in the Secretary of State, that would be Italian Cardinal Pietro Paterlin, the Secretary of State, Venezuelan Archbishop Edgardo Peña Para, who is now the number two official, that is, he has the job that Bechu used to have, that the argument is that they simply screwed up, that through a combination of naivete and being out of their depth, they made a series of mistakes. And according to this lawyer in Trieri, who is arguing on behalf of Tirabasi, What's actually going on now is not a search for justice, it is a search for scapegoats. That is, it's an effort to insulate higher-ups from responsibility, to shift the blame to smaller fry, smaller fish in the system, and criminalize their, mis their conduct when, in fact, what they were doing was trying to execute what they perceived to be, at least, the orders from their superiors. Now, you know, we will see how the three-judge panel presiding over this case eventually rules. But look, my experience over 25 years of covering the Vatican, I will boil it down to this. If you ever have to choose, between a Machiavellian conspiracy and rank incompetence for explaining what happened in the Vatican, you will almost always be right if you opt for the latter. Don't give these guys too much credit. This is not like, you know, a situation in which the best and brightest are moving pieces on a chessboard in order to shape predetermined outcomes. More often, you're talking about people who are, you know, by their own lights doing the best they can, but just frankly are a little in over their heads. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that chaos rather than conspiracy generally is a better explanation for what's going on. You know, we will see how the court sorts out these competing narratives, but it is nevertheless interesting this sort of, you know, perennial tension about how to explain things that happen in the Vatican is now being surfaced in full public view during the course of this trial. By the way, defense presentations are scheduled to continue through early December. Verdicts are expected by the end of the year. We'll see what happens. All right, finally, this week, we've got the politics of the Pope. So, Argentina, Pope Francis's home country, went to the polls on Sunday in an effort to elect a new president. Now, Argentinian law requires that if somebody is going to win on the first round of balloting, they have to get either 45% of the vote or they have to get 40% and the next closest finisher has to be at least 10 points behind. Neither one of those things happened on Sunday. Instead, what happened 
is it the first place finisher, finisher, Sergio Massa, who represents the current center-left government. He got about 38% of the vote. And then the second place finisher, a radical libertarian who describes himself as an anarcho-capitalist by the name of Javier Millet, finished in second place with around 30, 31% of the vote. And so what that means is that Massa and Mele are going to face one another in a November 19th runoff to determine who will be the next president of Argentina. Now, from a Catholic point of view, what is interesting about all of this is that even though Pope Francis obviously is not on the ballot, nevertheless, the Pope's profile and the Pope's agenda very much are at the heart of this election. Massa represents the center-left government, which from the very beginning has kind of wrapped itself in the papal flag, claiming to represent Pope Francis's concern for the underdog, his concern for the poor, his concern for the environment, and on and on. Mille, on the other hand, this anarcho-capitalist, has described himself from the very beginning as, if you like, kind of the polar opposite of Pope Francis. I mean, let me be clear that publicly, Millet has described Pope Francis as, and I'm quoting here, a communist, an imbecile, a son of a bitch, and somebody who always stands on the side of evil. <laughs> In Millet's final campaign rally before the vote on Sunday, one of his key allies stood up and said, that Argentina should suspend relations with the Vatican as long as a spirit of totalitarianism is at its helm, referring to Pope Francis, and said that under Pope Francis, under the guise of traditional values, what is actually happening is that the Catholic Church and the Vatican are propagating Marxism. Now, as if all that weren't enough, let me point out that Millet's running mate is an Argentinian woman by the name of Victoria Villaruel. And Villaruel, who is a hardline pro-lifer, that is, a strongly, staunchly anti-abortion figure, is also a member of the, or at least an adherent, of the Society of St. Pius X, that is the breakaway traditionalist Catholic movement created by Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre at the time of the Second Vatican Council that essentially rejects the legitimacy of popes since the Second Vatican Council. In other words, legitimate contenders to run the pope's home country include a libertarian who rejects the idea of state intervention in the economy and a Latin mass devotee. If you can think of a more ironic situation that, that would occur in the home country of a pope, I would love to hear it, because quite honestly, I have never seen it. Now, the drama of the November 19th runoff is what happens to the votes of the third-place finisher, who was the candidate of the center-right coalition, one might argue that some of those conservative votes will go to Mille because these people won't want to vote for the center-left. 
On the other hand, there is also the idea that some of those votes will be kind of establishment votes that won't want to elect a radical populist who is going to upset the apple cart. You know, we're going to see what happens. But what I can tell you is that our spotlight should be on this election in Argentina because it is a referendum on the Pope in the Pope's own home country, something that so far as I am aware has never happened before in the more, more than 2,000 year history of the Catholic Church. And when you can say that, ladies and gentlemen, when you can legitimately call something unprecedented, that is a big deal. All right, that is our show for this week. You can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site, that is cruxnow.com. We will be back here next bat week, next bat channel, to bring you the latest and greatest on the close of the Senate of Bishops. In the meantime, I invite you to stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again very, very soon.